Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 12, Acts 12. In January of this year, Newsweek ran a story that had this quote. It said that persecution and genocide of Christians across the world is worse today than at any time in history. That was Newsweek. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, that's an Eastern African radical Islamic terrorist group. They kind of lead the pack of these perpetrators. North Korea, by the way, has been ranked number one for 17 straight years as the most dangerous country for Christians. During this reporting period in 2018, 3,066 Christians have been murdered, 1,252 have been abducted, uh, 1,020 have been raped or sexually harassed, and 793 churches were attacked. From the start of the first century church until now, Christians have been persecuted. The book of Acts, as we know, is kind of a, a highlight reel of the beginning church. And as we've made our way through the first 11 chapters, we've seen that the, the main perpetrators of this persecution were really from religious leaders, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But in Acts 12, we see a little shift, where now government authorities are added to the list of the culprits. Uh, Rome turned against Christians because they felt they were bad for society, and the Christians and the Jews had this tension, and they wanted to make sure that they kept the Jews happy. So despite the opposition, though, we see continual involvement of God throughout church history in advancing the gospel. Now, for some, that might mean martyrdom. Uh, for others, that may mean that uh, they were perhaps delivered and God intervened. Uh, but what we can know is in this chapter that God watches over his church he carries out his plan, even when immediate events seem beyond our explanation or understanding. It'll come as a surprise to nobody. We're going to get through two verses today. But I'm going to read the entire chapter just for the sake of context so we know kind of what is taking place. So let's all stand. And about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. 
When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Now Peter came to himself. He said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When, the, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Uh, they, they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hands uh, to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's uh, country for food. On appointed day, Herod put on the, his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. What? A story. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Well, we left chapter 11 talking about a prophecy concerning a famine that was to come upon the region of Judea. We're told that this famine took place under the Roman ruler, Claudius. Now the events in chapter 12 took place between the prophecy of chapter 11 and the fulfillment of that prophecy around 45 to 46 AD. Acts 12.23 records Herod's death, and we know from history that that was 44 AD. So we know where to place what is happening here. Now the Herod that is mentioned here is Herod Agrippa I, who was about 55 years old during this time, his mid-50s, when his former schoolmate Claudius became emperor in 41 AD, Herod Agrippa I was given rule of Judea and Samaria. Now, once installed by Rome, he sought to gain the favor of the Jews, so he found it politically expedient to persecute Christians. Apparently, the persecution of Christians was a family trait. Agrippa's uncle, Herod Antipas, murdered John the Baptist. 
Agrippa's grandfather, Herod the Great, was on the throne during Jesus' birth, and he's the one that ordered that all the babies under two years old be killed in Bethlehem. It was a violent family. And James and Peter would not be the last of God's people to feel their wrath and their power. Josephus, the Jewish historian, describes Agrippa as very Jewish in the presence of Jews and very Roman when in the presence of Romans. He was a vain man who tried to endear others to himself by inducing them with gifts and favors. And no matter how hard he tried with the Jews, there was still deep animosity for Herod, which only made him more motivated to persecute Christians to win the favor of the Jews. As an ambassador of Pax Romana, there's no doubt about Agrippa's ultimate allegiance. Pax Romana meant that he was responsible for the peace of Rome. So verse 1 tells us that Herod, Agrippa I, oversaw a general persecution of Christians. Uh, the term that's used by Luke, the author of Acts, is violent hands. It means that Herod saw to it that harm and mistreatment would be done to Christians. And one in particular that was targeted was James. Now, this is not James, the brother of Jesus, but James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. James, the half-brother of Jesus, would go on and write the book of James, which was written about 20 years after these episodes in Acts 12. And since the James of Acts 12 was martyred in the mid-80s, we deduce that it was actually the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. Now let us turn to Matthew 20. Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew 20. There's a fascinating look here into James and John that precludes Acts 12. Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. Listen to this. And then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, that's Jesus, with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? Uh, she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It should not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. First notice that the mother, Jesus says, does not realize what she is asking. She was wanting recognition for her sons. And it's almost comical because verse 24 says the other ten disciples were, were upset that John and James were apparently using their mother to gain stature. They addressed John and James, not the mother. 
Now, we don't know if the mother's just being overbearing because of her sons, or the sons were just being, you know, passive, having mommy go and talk to Jesus on their behalf. But Jesus tells the mom that she would have to wait for the Heavenly Father to assign these thrones. But what he could guarantee is that if they want to share with Jesus, they can share in the cup that he was going to drink. And what would be that cup? It would be a cup of suffering. And oh, what a cup in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus took upon himself just before his capture. And all the gates of hell would break loose from that point on, trying to destroy the Son of God. Acts 12 demonstrates, though, that it would not stop with Jesus, but it would include his disciples. James and John, with their mother, had asked for thrones, but Jesus made it clear that there would be no glory outside from suffering. And both of them replied to Jesus, we are willing to partake of this cup. And they both would eventually discover the cost of winning such a throne of glory. James was arrested. And it says he died by the sword. That meant that he was either beheaded or thrust by the sword. John became an exile on the Isle of Patmos, a prisoner of Rome. My dear friends, there is great blessing for those who suffer because of the gospel. There is great blessing in heaven for those who suffer for the gospel. Maybe you've lost some friends because of your relationship with Christ. Maybe you have been ridiculed. This is not a martyr complex that we take. It's just a fact. Now, I'm not talking about when you're a jerk and then people mistreat you. I'm talking about just in the regular you know, course of life as you make a stand for Christ, others reject you. Take encouragement, though, from the promises of God. Listen to this, Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 1 Peter 4. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What a challenge. 2 Corinthians 12 says this, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, suffering has a way of, of revealing our weaknesses. It has a way of revealing our limits when we suffer. God, I can't make it without you. That's exactly where he wants us. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses. I'm content. I am content with insults. I am content with hardships. 
I am content with persecutions. Content. We weren't content when our electricity was out for four hours this week. Content with persecutions, with calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, Matthew 5. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Falsely. You ever had accusations made against you? False accusations? Mm. Especially from people who know you or are friends. It's the worst kind of accusations. You may grieve over that. You may have that hang in your, in your crawl for a long time. It's a medical term, your crawl. Go look it up in the dictionary. Right? And what's it say? When, when others ridicule you, listen to this. Rejoice and be glad. False accusation, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. You know what I, what I think this is all saying is, God's got this. God will take care of this. I don't have to scurry around and make sure that everybody understands what the, what the truth of the story is. I'm not what those people are saying. God's got this. He's got this. I can be content. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, you know, we know from this passage, I just read all of it to start this message, that Peter would be delivered. He'd be rescued from jail. And we're told that the believers were praying for him. But I think it would be reckless for us to think that the believers in the early church were also not praying for James. Why was James allowed to die via a sword? And Peter rescued. I mean, after all, both were disciples, both were leaders, both were dedicated servants of God. They were needed by the church. One dies and one lives. What's up with that? Mandy Keller spent Thursday night frantically calling police stations and sheriff's office in southwest Missouri. Keller lives in Texas, but her 15-year-old daughter... Jillian was among the 31 people aboard the Ride of the Ducks amphibious tour vessel that capsized on Table Rock. Her daughter survived. Keller said this, I quote, God spared my daughter, my child, and she's coming home alive and not in a body bag. Well, what are we to say about the 17 others who filled a body bag? Tia Coleman was aboard the same vessel with 10 other family members. And when the boat went down, she said, she prayed, Lord, let me die. She let go and started floating to the top, to the surface of the water. She wanted to die. She prayed to die, but she survived. 
See, the, the sovereign will of God is certainly not always predictable. But does that mean God is not sovereign? Didn't say that. Here's something that psalmists had difficulty coming to grips with. And here it is. The righteous will suffer. The righteous will suffer. Good people will die. And when life doesn't seem fair and circumstances work against us, what are we to think of God? Habakkuk was a man from an Old Testament period who had similar questions about God. In his case, a new empire was stretching across the world. Soon the Babylonians would overtake Judah and carry its inhabitants away into captivity. And Judah had seen great moral decline, national corruption since the death of Josiah, and under the ruler of uh, the rule of Jehoiakim, decay, violence, greed, fighting, perverted justice, that was the norm. And on the eve of pending destruction, in a period of great fear and uncertainty, Habakkuk writes this in chapter 1, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Why doesn't God answer my prayers? Why doesn't God move in my favor like I want? I mean, it's as if God is on a a different wavelength, a different channel or frequency. Janice Gravely in 1982, was riding with her husband in a small plane from Georgia to North Carolina. Her husband, Ed, was the pilot. He died while they were in air. And Janice kept screaming for help on the radio, all the while frantically switching the channels, trying to get somebody to respond. People were trying to get through, but she couldn't keep the radio on the channel long enough to get an answer. She never did get the help she needed in the air. She crashed, landed in a field, broke her hip, crawled for 45 minutes to get help. Is is it possible that God is trying to get through to us, but in our frenzy, we're too distracted to hear? And God's voice At a time like that, it can certainly calm our hearts if we're willing to be still and know that he's God and listen. There's not an app for that. Be still and know that he's God. 
and listen. Janice gravely wondered why nobody was listening, and all the while, help was but a fingertip away. Thankfully, there are a couple other chapters in Habakkuk. It ends different than how it started. Habakkuk ends his letter with these words. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the fruit of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He, he makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. I like those last few words. You know what that tells us? He's singing this. <laughs> this is a song. See, when, a, when the fig tree does not blossom, when the produce fails, when the flock and herds are gone, you are in deep doo-doo. Okay? That means you have lost your livelihood. That means nothing is going right. But there's still a God, Habakkuk says, that I can draw near to. That's the reality. God is my strength. God is my salvation. He is present in my pain. Stephen Curtis Chapman, the Christian singer, lost a child when one of his teenagers accidentally ran over the child in their own driveway. Chapman would later say this, I have learned that we can control where we allow things that we can't understand to fall. They either fall between us and God and we become angry, or we allow these things to fall outside of us and press us in closer to God. See, God may deliver us, or God may allow us to suffer, or God may even allow us to lose our life. But either way, God's character does not change, and he is still there. We may find it difficult to find security in what God is doing, but we can always find security and who God is. Sorry to end a sentence on a preposition, but it made more sense. I'm going to close with Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. I want you to notice, I will give thanks, I will recount, I will be glad, I will sing praises. What does that tell us? That it's a choice. That we are responsible for our perspective. That I am not subject to my circumstances, but I can choose to thank him, to recognize his presence, to sing to him, to praise him, to recognize his sovereignty. He's a God who is there. 
He's a God who is sovereign. He's a God who loves me, even though my circumstances may be hard. That doesn't change 